Welcome to all of you who have ears to hear this message. This is David Thompson coming to you from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those of you that are new, I briefly want to share what I'm about to share as to where I am coming from. The Word of God commands through the Apostle Peter, the early church, with the statement in 1 Peter 4.11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. We are to seek to allow the Spirit of God to speak through us. Those that know a relationship with God can enter in to allowing the Holy Spirit to rise forth and speak what he wants to speak so that it is not merely our words that are being spoken, but we are speaking out of the utterance of the Spirit of God. Christ said, the words that I speak are spirit and life. And it is my prayer that these words will touch the very core of your being to bring forth God's full purpose in your life. So I am not sharing something that I have prepared. I've only spent a half an hour meditating on a particular chapter in the Word of God. And in that half hour, I've made some brief notes. That's all. And I'm trusting the Spirit of God to rise up through me and speak his words. Part of what I do is I cast lots before God on a particular chapter. There's an equal possibility of any chapter from the whole Bible, the Word of God, to come forth. I do that to facilitate allowing God to speak what he would speak. It's not the only way one can receive from the word of God. But when one is walking in a pure heart before God in holiness, this genuinely works when it's not treated in a light way. And there are many verses both in the Old and New Testament that emphasize the casting of lots. In Proverbs 16, it says, the casting of the lot and the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. I know there's a lot of people that may, in their natural religious mindset, look down on this, but they really have no grounds for that because it is very much practiced throughout the Word of God. It was practiced by the nation of Israel, by the early church. It was practiced by powerful movements of revival throughout church history, such as the Moravians. And why would one not have faith in the sovereignty of God and not understand that God, his presence is attached to every particle of existence? That he is omniscient, all-knowing. omnipresent. This is nothing for God to sovereignly lead one through the casting of lots in the word of God. And to have a lack of faith in that 
Well, that's unfortunate that many people would have such a viewpoint. So today I am about to share from a particular passage that I received from Ephesians chapter 3. First, I will read the whole chapter before sharing this message in Ephesians chapter 3. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you were, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when ye read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the internal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. I'm going to take a drink of water before I begin to share here. <clears throat> this particular chapter, written by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, is sharing 
the ultimate purpose for which all creation exists, for which you as an individual exist, and I. And so I want to share from this passage what Paul the Apostle is bringing forth by the revelation of the Holy Spirit as is clearly mentioned in this passage. This is mentioned in the very first part. He says in verse 3, how that by revelation, that is God, made known unto him the mystery. He says, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words. What Paul is writing here was revealed by the very Spirit of God to him. And it is absolutely powerful what he is sharing in this chapter. Now, the first few verses, he is just sharing about how God has called him. He didn't send himself. He didn't go to some institution to study the Bible and get a degree. This is a sad state in the church today that there's more merit put on professionalism. Someone getting an intellectual knowledge through study of the scripture as a basis for being put in leadership rather than one that has been very clearly and evidently raised up supernaturally by God to be an apostle or to be a pastor or to be a teacher or to be an evangelist. Paul the Apostle emphasizes that God was the one that called him in this first section of about approximately verses 1 to 8. He mentions that he is suffering as a prisoner in order to bring the gospel to the Gentiles because of that. So he addresses himself as the prisoner of Jesus Christ for the Gentiles in verse 1. If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word. In other words, an appointed period of time. Have you heard of this appointed period of time for God's grace to be made known to you. In particular, he's talking about himself. That there's been an appointed period for God's grace to be brought forth through him to the Gentiles, which are those that are not Jews in his time. And he goes on in this passage of scripture and emphasizes that he received this good news from God. The gospel means good news by revelation of the Spirit of God revealing it to him. That's in verse 3. And he says that when you read what I have written to you, because this that I'm, this chapter 
that we just read, chapter 3 of Ephesians, is part of the letter that was written to the church of Ephesus. That you would understand that the knowledge he has in the mystery of Christ is great. Because he is revealing mysteries that have not been revealed. Not some Gnosticism, not some intellectual titillations that puff up the ego. No, he's revealing something that is absolutely something that will shake a person to the very core of their inner being when they realize what he is sharing. And he says that in other ages, this was not made known unto the sons of men as it has now been revealed unto him as an apostle and to the prophets by the Spirit of God. And part of this mystery that he's revealing, mentioned in verse 6, is that the Gentiles, which are those that are not the Jewish people, should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of the promise that God gives through Christ to those that are receptive and have received the good news that God is bringing forth to the whole world. And so Paul emphasizes in verse 7, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. There's another verse that says, a man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from above. And that is speaking in the context of those that are the ones that God has supernaturally raised up and clearly verified to be an authority that is not raised up out of the sufficiency of the institutions of man, but is indeed raised up by God. And so Paul had the favor of God, the grace of God, which speaks of the favor of God. In the New Testament, there is a difference between the word mercy and grace. Mercy has the understanding of judgment that deserved to come on someone being canceled because of them receiving the mercy that God provides for it to be canceled. But grace has the understanding that out of that issues also can issue also the favor of God towards someone. God's love, his favor, his blessing in revealing, in this case, the gospel onto Paul in order to bring that same favor onto the people that have received the good news of the gospel by repenting and asking for God's mercy and forgiveness and receiving it through receiving the atoning work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And he goes on in verse 8, and he says 
Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given. Paul the Apostle genuinely viewed himself as least the least of all those people that are living holy lives. Saints speaks of those that are living holy lives before God. And he's saying he sees himself as the least. And that's because of the terrible things that he did in persecuting the church before he had that amazing conversion on the road to Damascus where God intervened and had mercy on him. And Paul says the reason he received God's mercy was because his persecution of the Christians was done in ignorance and in unbelief. He thought he was doing God's service. He was doing it in ignorance out of his own self-righteous zeal. What I want to share, which will amplify and, and bring understanding to what Paul is sharing in this passage is going to make you also be moved to the very core of your being about what I am going to share that confirms what Paul the Apostle also received by the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Paul, I will go on now to begin to share what Paul begins to discuss about the gospel in verse 9. And he says, And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Paul's called to make all men see the fellowship of this mystery. He also is revealing what this mystery is to those that have ears or a heart to hear and receive. Their understanding will be open. This mystery of the good news of the gospel brings a fellowship and communion with God. Basically, the word fellowship here means communion. It brings a communion with God, a oneness with the Creator that also conquers the tendency in man in his fallen state of rebellion against God to be divisive, to hate one another, to not be able to come into a genuine unity. And when there is a unity, it is superficial and shallow and counterfeit. It is this deep communion of love in a relationship with God that brings forth the secret to genuine economy that can contain power and life 
in a way that is not directed eventually into a state of dissipation and corruption. It is the secret of ultimate economy. Of course, the ultimate economy of the universe is God himself. For it is the being of God that is the secret of why all creation exists. Not only is it the secret in the being of God of what is the reason for all things, including your own life. So what is the secret? And I am going to explain it here in the process of expounding what Paul the Apostle is talking about in this passage of Scripture. He's talking about the gospel. But this is a gospel that has been from the very time of Adam and Eve until now and will continue on forever in the future. In fact, this gospel was even before the creation of the world because this gospel, this good news, is in the very being of who God is. It is in knowing and understanding the mystery of who God is, not intellectually, far more in the heart, that brings the reality of this into the depths of one's being so that their lives are changed and brought in to relationship with God, to eternal life. People do not understand that the word eternal means more than something that's just everlasting. It means a quality that is so great and so perfect that there's no corruption in it, that it can last forever and not only last forever, but can enlarge forever in greater capacity of fulfillment and meaning and creativity and ever be enlarging without end forever and ever and ever. It is the ultimate quality. It is the eternal gospel, but it is also called the everlasting gospel in Revelations chapter 14, I believe it is around verse 16, it describes the everlasting gospel. I've memorized the book of Revelations. I suppose I could just quote it without turning to it. It describes the chronology of certain events that will take place just before the consummation of history. It describes this chronology at that very end time, which is the time we happen to be living in right now. It describes, it says, And I saw an angel fly through the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell upon the earth saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. So the first angel is preaching what is called the everlasting gospel. 
at the end of the age. And the next angel that immediately follows, and another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, has fallen that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon is speaking as you study the book of Revelation. It is clearly described and defined in such chapters as chapter 17. And it describes it as being a woman that sits on many waters and that the waters represent the peoples and multitudes and nations around the world. So briefly, this woman is the world system. And this woman is described as a prostitute or a harlot. And what it is representing is basically this. A harlot implies that at one time they were not a harlot. There was a time when democracy started in the United States and people believed in genuine relationship with God and with one another and in living lives that were holy. It's out of holiness that comes genuine wholeness. They were living lives that were holy. But there comes a time when deception has crept in and then there's democracies around the world that are embracing immorality and flaunting their blasphemy in the face of God with beliefs in those things that are destructive to the family unit, that are perversions of the way God has created things. And that show throughout history from the beginning of the time that when these perversions are embraced by society, that those societies, the family unit breaks down and as a result, the society crumbles and is brought to absolute destruction. And time and time again, we see that this is the condition before nations are totally conquered by other nations or, or become so weakened in their greatness and might because of their immorality that in one way or another they are brought to total destruction and judgment. And so the second angel is speaking of the destruction of the world system globally that has embraced immorality. And we see that's the case today. And it seems to be very clear that it is describing mass destruction of all the major cities that embrace these things, which would probably most likely be from the description you read there by nuclear explosions in these cities, totally vaporizing them. And the, you can look at men like Henry Groover that are genuine prophets, not like many that aren't, that have foretold of such events soon to happen. And then after the world system is destroyed, the Antichrist system is upon the earth. And then it is judged by God and utterly destroyed and the kingdom of God comes upon the earth with his corporate bride. What I am wanting to share here is about this corporate bride because this is much 
brought forth in this chapter, which involves the gospel. But I also want to emphasize the aspect of the gospel as being everlasting, of existing before the world was created, being preached at the very time of Adam and Eve, throughout the time before Christ and now the time after Christ, and going on to being expressed throughout eternity. So I want to give an understanding on what Paul the Apostle is talking about here. And for those that are you, I also want to explain these things to you that do not have maybe any background where you've read the Bible or have been exposed to Christianity. The first thing I want to point out is about the gospel being in the very being of God. One needs to understand, therefore, about God. God is the ultimate source of reality. He is the ultimate source of truth. I could go into a lot to describe this, but for time I will forbear. I will say this, that if you look up in the dictionary what the word truth means, it is described and basically defined in most dictionaries as that which is real. So when you look up in most dictionaries what reality is or what real means, it is described as that which is everlasting, unchangeable, and indestructible. Reality is who God is. God is unchangeable, he is everlasting and indestructible because he has the ultimate eternal quality. Remember I said eternal is a quality that is ultimate in its perfection. Reality is the absence of any destructive principle It is the opposite of death. It contains only life. Life that is ever enlarging and ever expanding in greater and greater expressions of creativity and fulfillment. So what quality could possibly contain unlimited life and unlimited power and not be corrupted by it? And as such, obviously, is indicative that it is the very source of life and power. We know that in science, in the observable universe, there is two laws, the first and second laws of thermodynamics. The first law basically says that matter cannot be destroyed. It may change from one form of energy to another, but it is always there, inferring that there, therefore, this implies that there is no beginning. The second loss basically says this, that anything left on its own always goes in the direction of greater chaos and disorder to absolute randomness or destruction. And yet here we are in a highly designed universe or now they know in one little cell in our bodies, there are machines that are so complex, they're more complex than the most sophisticated 
rockets that can go to outer space. In fact, they're so complex, they would be equivalent to NASA creating a rocket that could fly to another planet, reproduce itself on that planet, take off again and fly to another planet and spread throughout the universe. Yes, what is in one of our little cells, the little machines that are in there are more complex than that. And that I, you can find out by reading a book such as in Darwin's Black Box. Look it up on the internet and read it for yourself. And so God has a quality a being. And there's only one that can contain this life that is without the slightest destructibleness or corruptibleness in it. It is not, it does not contain corruption. So what is this quality that is the very being of who God is? It is love. And love has, there's only one quality that could contain unlimited life and power and ever expand with it and have no corruption in it. And that is a love, first of all, that is totally free and the source of its own action. It's not receiving its information and its control from an outside source it is totally self-originating and free to express the core of who they really are. In God, that expression is always in a choice that is onto the highest lasting good over any more immediate fulfillment that would be less than the highest lasting good as such. And therefore would contain a principle of destructibility in it because the choices would obviously be less than onto the highest good. For love to have such a quality, a free choice, in such a perfection, means that it, it has absolute purity and integrity. It is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to it. It will not condone the slightest that is contrary to it. For the moment it did, it would no longer have the quality that could contain unlimited life and power that can ever enlarge with it in greater and greater goodness. This aspect of God's love is also known as the holiness of God. You can de describe it as the defensive aspect of love. And one of the best ways to illustrate it is with the negative and the positive, because all of creation is filled with a negative and a positive. So this can be looked at as the negative aspect of the being of God, which is really an ultimate positive, because this symbol, which is the negative symbol in mathematics, is a horizontal line which can represent foundation. It is on that foundation, that is a foundation that is unshakable and indestructible, a love that is absolutely pure in its integrity to judge all that is contrary to it. 
That is the foundation from which the creativity of God, the love of God can be expressed in creativity without corruption that can ever enlarge. And that creativity is described here in Ephesians as being ultimately expressed in its perfection in seeking to bring forth a corporate bride. So the other thing I want to bring out about the being of God's love is the positive that comes out of the negative. The negative symbol in mathematics represents a horizontal line or a foundation. The positive is what springs out of that foundation and forms a positive symbol that is the symbol of the cross. God's love is so pure that he can express in creativity and bring forth creation. Creation with purpose and destiny. The only way that can be possible is if in this absolute purity of love there can spring forth the power to assure mercy and forgiveness to all created free will beings who have been tempted and rebelled against God. Remember, when God creates beings with free will, he creates them because that gives them the capacity to love because God is love. And so he creates a creation that isn't robots, but has the capacity to love. They are the source of their own action. This means that there is the potential in creating a creation with a capacity to love, to be the source of their own action, to be their own creators of destiny, the potential for them to make choices that are in rebellion against God and therefore the potential of destructibility in their being or hell in their heart that can create a hell around them. When Lucifer fell, and I don't have time to go in depth into this, I'd be speaking for hours here. He went against the direct presence of God's blessing. He wasn't tempted like us beings are through indirect things in the physical realm. He was receiving the ultimate blessings and presence of God and somehow began to see himself as being able to rise up and be equal to God and try to be above God. The moment that happened, he lost the fear of God. Fear of God, I will explain in detail later. The moment that happened, which it was a choice to not recognize God as ultimately trustworthy, to not recognize the being of God in its ultimate perfection of love and glory and be filled with thankfulness and appreciation 
for the glory that was before him. It was filled with such incredible love and brightness and life and creativity. In the moment one chooses to wrongly recognize God for who he truly is, they have lost the fear of God. The, the choice to fear God is the choice to recognize God and the reality of who he truly is, not in the mind, but far more in the heart, in such a way that there's not only an acknowledgement, but there's a reciprocation of who God is into one's being, because to perceive who God really is requires the recognition of their need for the mercy of God in our creation which is tempted by outward things, unlike the angels. But with Lucifer, this direct rebellion against the, pre the, the love of God and the presence of God, the moment that happened, a vacuum formed in his being because all created beings were created to find their completeness and their wholeness and their fulfillment in communion with God. And when that vacuum formed, it was like a black hole in outer space. And so he tried to grasp onto filling it, filling, fulfilling it, trying to make himself complete in himself, in independence of God. And the more he grasped, the more he was like a black hole in outer space that in his choices was pulling all things around him in a destructive way. So there was, as it were, a hell in one's being that was causing a hell around, like a black hole sucking all things in in a destructive way, trying to fill a void that was only created to be filled by the Spirit of God. Now getting back to the main theme here, which is this gospel that is everlasting and is in the very being of God. God also is misunderstood by various religions that Christians believe in three gods. We do not believe those that are true Christians and know the word of God in three gods. Here is the understanding of God. There is only one God. As it says in the word of God, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. But here's the understanding. There are three ultimate aspects to existence. That is that which is beyond time and space, then the creation which is the time and space realm, and then the filling of all space. For God to govern, these three ultimate dimensions requires that he be in them. So God governs beyond the time and space realm in personage. In that aspect, God is known as the Father. And Father speaks of the originator. In fact, the word Father basically means that. So God is the originator. And it speaks of God who sees the end from the beginning because he's beyond the time and space realm. So as the Father, God sees the end from the beginning. And he must be in personage in that aspect of existence. 
for God to govern within his creation and be God over his creation and relate to his creation, he must be expressed into his creation in personage. The Son, the word Son means expression. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the full expression of the Father into the time and space realm in order to govern in that realm, over that realm, and relate to his creation. And so we have God is the Father and God is the Son. In Hebrews 1.3, it, it says that Jesus Christ is the full expression of the Father. Christ himself said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In John 14. And then we have the Holy Spirit, which is God in omnipresence with his presence attached to every particle that he has created of all that exists in creation and able to be at all places at the same time in creative acts by his spirit. And so we have the three ultimate dimensions of existence governed by God, which is only possible by God being in personage in those three ultimate dimensions of existence. Within this triunity of governance in the one true God, there is relationship. There is fellowship. Because as the word of God clearly makes, makes it clear, God is love. And I've described this love. There's first the negative aspect of it, so to speak, which is the holiness of God or the integrity of God's love, out of which springs the capacity for God to show mercy. Now, here's the amazing thing about the mercy of God, which is the other aspect of God's love. If God could not assure destiny and purpose to created beings that are given their own free will, then it would imply that God was imperfect because he was creating a creation that could not have destiny and purpose. The evidence of God's ultimate perfection in love is that he has the power to assure mercy and forgiveness to his creation. Oh, you might say, well, what about the angels you were talking about? I have a book I'm writing that goes and clearly gives an understanding of all this. But if I talked about this now, I'd be talking for a long time. God has out of this foundation of holiness or purity of love, such a high quality of love that he, before he came on the cross, before he even created the world, had in him a love that was so great that it had the capacity to become a perfect atoning sacrifice for his creation. 
It is very clear from the time of Adam and Eve throughout the Old Testament that they recognized that God was the source of forgiveness. They recognized and were commanded to take an innocent lamb and place their hand or some other animal and place their hand, sometimes different animals, but mainly an innocent lamb, and place their hand on that lamb and sacrifice it for their sin. This placing of their hand on the animal was a symbol of their sin being transferred onto that animal. But it is very clear from reading the Old Testament that they knew that the animal could not cleanse their soul and spirit, but only their body, which would allow God's presence to dwell in communion with their soul and spirit, but not to indwell their soul and spirit. That is why Christ said just before he died on the cross, but you know him for he dwells with you, speaking of the Holy Spirit, but he shall indwell you or dwell in you. Because after Christ died on the cross, their soul and their spirit could be cleansed, which will allow the indwelling of God's spirit in their very soul and spirit and allow them as such, having their soul and spirit in that state, to come into the very presence of the Holy of Holies in heaven through prayer. In the Old Testament, before Christ, before God, gave himself as a perfect atoning sacrifice. There was a clear understanding that only God could forgive. And I can show you specific passages that make it very clear. One of these days, my lot will probably fall in that passage which really makes it clear. I don't know, remember where it is right now. But it makes it very clear that only God can forgive. And it also states, what shall I give is a, for the sin of my soul? Shall I give my children as a sacrifice or my own body? And it clearly implies that there's nothing that could possibly be given to cleanse our soul from sin. The the inference is clear that it only lies in God, for it is clearly recognized in the Old Testament that God is the source of forgiveness. And as such, this implies very clearly, since God requires judgment upon the slightest that is contrary to the integrity of his love, that God himself has the moral capacity in himself. They knew, This is before Christ died on the cross. There was, I'm sure, the recognition by some, by the revelation or by just coming to intellectual understanding or whatever, the revelation that within God there was the moral capacity for him to have such love for his creation that he could humble himself more than his creation and suffer more than his creation and become a perfect atoning sacrifice to absorb the judgment of the sin of his creation upon himself. They recognized that God had such a moral capacity. For they recognized that in God was the capacity only for forgiveness. That forgiveness was in God. That God was able to assure forgiveness and mercy to them. And they knew that then. Christ himself said, whoever has been taught and learned of the Father 
comes to me. And there were many from the time of Adam and Eve till now that came into a very close relationship with God, such as Enoch. And many, there were those that prophesied in the camp of Israel. And the elders told Moses to tell them to shut up. And Moses said, no, I wish that all Israel would become like them. They came into such a close relationship with God that the Spirit of God came upon them and they prophesied out of a close relationship of intimacy with God. And so, this gospel has been preached very clearly from the time of Adam and Eve and was in the being of God even before the world was created. And I want to describe now how this gospel was, which is this mystery that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians, was in the very being of God. I haven't shared a lot about the fear of God, but it's basically coming to a place where one is open to who God is to the point that they choose from their heart to acknowledge the integrity of God's love, that they deserve judgment, and that God to be must be ultimately trustworthy, must be totally pure, in a love that has such an integrity to judge all that is contrary. That's the holiness of God. And out of that, also recognize the power of God to provide mercy and to assure forgiveness. There is no love that can be greater than this. And it is in the recognition of these two aspects of the being of God, this negative and this positive, which forms a cross in the symbol of the positive. It's the ultimate positive of all existence, so to speak. For it is the manifestation on the cross of God's love that gives destiny and assures all those that would repent and receive God's mercy, destiny and purpose forever. And so I'm wanting to just to describe the being of God here in a moment. But there's this aspect of recognizing God. It is a choice to recognize God for who he truly is in his holiness and in his mercy. From the heart that brings a deep turning in the heart that causes the Spirit of God, to enter into one's being and dwell with them. Christ described it this way. He said there was some Pharisees, which are just religious people that like to set themselves up above others, but didn't know a relationship with God for those that are new. And they were thanking God that they give their thighs, which is offerings to God, and they fast and they pray, and were not like other men. And then Christ said there was this publican, which is someone that was perceived as a compromiser with the Romans against the Jews, tax collector for over the Jewish people. And he, was, he put his face in the ground and he beat his breast and he cried out from the depths of his heart and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and repeated it over and over. And Christ said, that man truly was justified before God. But the ones that are proud and in their own self-righteousness, a state of deceptive self-worship, 
which is idolatry, like the Pharisees, are condemned. Now, I don't want to get off track. I'm here wanting to describe what I just described is basically what happens out of the fear of God. A choice to recognize God in his holiness, out of which springs his mercy, and recognize the mercy of God, when it's truly from the heart, brings reciprocation. It brings a deep turning in the heart like the publican that causes one to receive forgiveness and cleansing of all their sin through the blood of Jesus Christ in this time. And even before Christ came, because they perceived in God as the Father what is expressed in the Son, which is the holiness of God and the mercy of God, or the grace of God as it's described in the New Testament, which is basically the same meaning as the word mercy in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, the word mercy has the understanding of not just receiving mercy, but of receiving the favor of God, which is his spirit and his blessing. In this triunity of God, I describe the oneness of God. The Son also chooses to fear the Father, or reverence the Father. And this is described in Isaiah 33, verse 5. In 6, where it describes Christ as the Messiah before he came, and it says, the fear of the Lord is his treasure. Jesus Christ, the expression of the Father into the creation realm, treasures walking and growing in the fear of God, exercising. What is it? How does that happen in this one God? The Son sees the Father from the very core of his being in the Father's glory, his integrity that is always judgmental against the slightest impurity that's against love. And he is reciprocating the beauty of that in such a thankfulness that he says to the Father, Father, I love you so much that I want to express my thankfulness by allowing this love to enlarge in a greater creativity of love towards you, by going into a great condescension into creation, to suffer more than the mere creature and humble myself more than mere, the mere creature, than mere man, and take judgment upon myself for their sin, so that I can bring to you, Father, a corporate bride. Father, I love you. I want to bring to you this corporate bride. And the father says to the son, Son, I love you so much. I see the, the glory that is in you, your hate for, for that which is contrary to love and your love being expressed. And, and I love you, son. And I, I'm willing to let you go. And I'm willing to suffer this, son, because I want you to be enlarged in inheriting a corporate bride that you can be over in your love towards me. And so there's this beautiful reciprocation of love within the very being of the one true God that goes on and on and on. 
And so this everlasting gospel, this everlasting good news is in the very being of God and was brought forth into the world in reality and was known before and planned before even man was created. And when the corporate bride comes forth in its perfection, as is described in various prophecies in the scripture, such as in the book of Daniel, probably about, what is it, 800 years or more, or 700 years before Christ came, and many other places. No time to go into it now. What is being described here in the book of Ephesians is what I'm talking about. And now when I begin to read the book of the Ephesians, now that I've laid down a foundation like this on what this is, you will see how great and wonderful this is. This is the very reason for which all things are created. Consider the fact that all creation consists of male and female counterparts. This is a reflection in creation itself of God's purpose, to have for himself a corporate bride that he can inhabit and that will go on in ever greater enlargement of love and creativity forever and ever in governing his creation. You can see on my site at ultimatemeaning.com atheists that died and somehow because maybe God knew that in their heart there was a genuine motive towards truth. They, when they died, saw hell and experienced what seemed like an eternity in hell. And they cried out in their suffering, in their torment, for God to have mercy. And he came, and you can watch the videos yourself as they testify of what they experienced. And these people were proven clinically dead. Definitely, they were totally dead. And they went into this other dimension. And then God had mercy on them and he brought them to heaven and showed him. And this one fellow that describes God says that the love that was emanating from God was so bright, so glorious, so filled with energy and power and love that it's beyond anything to describe in this world and to be able to even put in description. He said that out of his mouth was coming cre creations of galaxies and universes. There was just creativity of coming out of his mouth. Tremendous energy, tremendous power, all filled with such love. Well, beyond comprehension. Here in this passage of scripture, we see Paul describing this good news. And he begins to share the purpose of this good news. He talked about the fellowship of the mystery, which is what I'm talking about. I've explained that mystery. It's in the very triunity of who God is. And in that triunity, there is reciprocation through recognition one of another out of the fear of God that allows the reciprocation and enlargement of love. Fear of God being that choice to continually be 
in recognition of one another in a way that is filled with thankfulness and fellowship. In verse 10, it says, To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. The church means those that are called out, those that are coming forth to be a corporate bride for God from very diverse backgrounds and yet out of love, relationship with God, there's the capacity to love one another and to break down the walls of diversity that would in the natural cause division. And God's purpose in verse 10 is that he will display to the whole creation a corporate bride that is in such love and such unity in this diversity that forms this beautiful mosaic of individuality that is filled with such beauty of unity in God and as a result to also with one another. That when all the creation looks at what God has brought forth, they will have no desire to ever rebel again. They will be made immune from rebellion. They will be in a place of such fear of God that they will never fall into the deception of rebellion. That is God's intent, is to display the greatness of his wisdom to his creation in this corporate bride. And then he goes on to say, according to the eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God's purpose is ultimately that this will be to the greater enlargement of love in Christ, who is God. So love is always choosing the highest good. And that highest good is always enlarging back onto God, who is the highest good. And it is ultimately manifested on the cross in Christ and that is manifested as a result in a corporate bride. And so Paul goes on to describe one's relationship with Christ in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of who? The faith of Christ. And that is another thing that one could go into in depth. Our confidence is in Christ because it's through God, the expression of God, who came in Jesus Christ and lived and was tempted as we are and yet without sin. He was tempted in all points as we are, the Bible says, and yet without sin. And because he lived such a holy life, he, as it were, took the first man, Adam, who sinned. And as it were, through his obedience, took him and nailed him to the cross so that that fallen nature of Adam that is in us, that is in rebellion against God, could be replaced with Jesus Christ, who is the second Adam, so to speak. And he took judgment upon himself for us so that we could receive the assurance of forgiveness and of a destiny in heaven forever in a realm that is beyond comprehension. 
It is so incredible. In fact, the word of God says, I has not seen, neither has ear heard, what God hath prepared for those that love him. On the other hand, hell is described as a place that is so terrible and goes on forever and ever that it is worse than the worst torture that could possibly happen in this world. I don't even want to dwell on that. People may say, well, why would God create beings with free will if it means there's going to be all this suffering and people in hell forever and ever? The answer to that is simple. God is love. His very being is love and therefore will express purpose in love. And therefore, for people with their own free will to choose to rebel against his provision of love on the cross to be reconciled to him, to rebel against that is their own choice. They are responsible for their choices. It's like this. When you build a house, there's always a certain amount of waste in order to build that house. But the ones that choose of their own will to rebel ultimately against God's mercy and choose to harden their hearts in a state that can never change from a state that is destructive, that has hell in it and would make hell around them because they refuse the love of God. Is God going to deny the existence of who he is and the ex which involves love being expressed? Is he going to deny the fulfillment of a corporate bride? No. The purpose of the house is far greater than the bit of sawdust and waste that is left over. It is insignificant compared to the purpose of the house. There are mysteries we don't fully understand in all of these things. We only see partly now, but we do know this. That God has a purpose that's far greater than dwelling on the things of all the suffering around us. In fact, all the suffering around us is also even used, and all the rebellion and creation is also results in just cornering people towards the purpose of God, which is to be part of his corporate bride. Paul the Apostle is willing to suffer great tribulation in order to see God's purpose brought forth in a corporate bride. He himself knows such a depth of love for the church, a depth of love that comes from God that he's willing to go through great trial to see people brought into this incredible unity of love with God and one another. And he goes on to describe this in the last part of Ephesians. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. He recognizes God in government as the Father, as the source from which all the family in heaven and earth receives their name or who 
they really are, their uniqueness. And he's praying this, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. It is the strengthening of might by the Spirit of God in our inner being that allows us to rise up over the circumstances that would tempt us to turn away from God and to trust in ourselves rather than in his power to bring us through every contradiction, including martyrdom and death itself. that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. I should really explain in presenting this gospel about this understanding of faith and being rooted and grounded in love. When one chooses to fear God, that is to recognize God in the reality of who he really is, and there's a name for God in the Bible, that is the very description of the word reality, and it is I am that I am. Christ said, I am that I am, and in the Old Testament, God called himself, I am that I am. In Hebrew, it is ahiya, asher, ahiya. So God himself calls himself the very source of reality, of ultimate reality, where there's no death in his being, no corruption. And when we choose to recognize God in his reality, in his holiness first, and how without his mercy we could never, never possibly have a relationship with God. And we can never recognize the mercy of God if we don't first recognize this holiness of God, this integrity of his love, and become and, and be humbled in utter awe of this and of the glory of this perfection of love, this purity of love as a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to it. When there is, out of that recognition of the holiness of God, this, the recognition of the mercy of God, which can only be perceived out of first recognizing the holiness of God, when we really see personally God's mercy to us, that he has forgiven us because we repented. Well, the first time we repented and we saw the emptiness of our life and we loathed all the deceptions that were in our own heart and all the deceptions of false beliefs around us and people around us. We wanted only what was ultimately trustworthy and we became open to what only could be ultimate trust ultimately trustworthy, which is such a love. And then we saw the mercy of God and we cried out. And when we saw the mercy of God, we saw the love of God. And then our spirit, like a fist that is clenched, opened up into an open hand that represents a state of trust, a state of surrender, a state of selfless trust. Our hand is opening towards the love that we're recognizing that is ultimately trustworthy, which is ultimately revealed in God's mercy, which comes out of the foundation of his holiness. 
And so our hand reaches out and cries like that publican, God, be merciful. Our spirit, our soul, comes into this selfless state like an open hand. And then the spirit of God can represent the other open hand and comes to rest against that open hand that represents our soul and spirit in that state of recognition and reciprocation of the mercy of God in total trust. And then we have the symbol of two hands together in prayer, or also the symbol of the new divine sea, the new divine nature. And so it is by God's spirit dwelling with our spirit in that state of trust that we have this new divine nature that is described in 1 John, where it said, says this, whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And that is when one is genuinely born again of the Spirit of God, is when they cry out like that publican, with a genuine moral persuasion of belief from the heart. And their spirit and soul opens up and trust towards receiving the mercy of God, the blood of Christ that cleanses from all sin. And they are washed and cleansed and made as white as snow in their soul, forgiven because of the mercy of God. And if God could love us and show such mercy to us as an individual, to suffer more than you, a mere creature, more than you, and humble himself more than you, a mere creature, how can we not be filled with thankfulness to show mercy towards those who do us injustice and to conquer the barriers of division between one another? And so when it's talking here that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, it is an understanding of a faith that is reciprocating of who God is. In fact, it says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. So it is an ongoing process of faith. And the Bible says that faith works by love. Because faith is the response to the revelation of who God is, which is the revelation of love in its holiness and in its mercy or grace, as it's described in the New Testament. Another word for holiness can also be truth. So you can say truth and grace. And that's how it's described in the New Testament. The gospel came as, in its truth, and it, you'll see the word truth and grace often used. When we experience such love in our lives, then we can be brought into a unity with one another that is not a counterfeit unity where we all be, have more identity in a leader or in one another so that we become like a bunch of bricks that all look the same. It's a unity where there's individuality and yet great unity. When there's genuine love and someone offends us, we can go to that person, even though they're the ones that have done far greater wrong, and we can humble ourselves before them and admit our faults to them in order to win them to us and to conquer the things in them that are not out of God's love, but out of the blindness of their heart. And God calls us to come into a unity 
to be in conformity to his love who came and was rejected by his own to the point that he was crucified on the cross. Of course, he conquered death and rose again. And I could go in to describe the mystery of how Christ stayed in total unity with the Father through the cross. For it is very clear that the Father raised him from the dead, but that it was by the Spirit of holiness, as described in Romans 1.4, where it says that Christ was raised from the dead by the Spirit of holiness. Christ, though he experienced the judgment of our sin upon him, the judgment of the Father upon him, for our sin, he never lost his trust in the Father. His soul was always in a state of selfless trust, like the open hand, even though at that moment he felt totally forsaken. He maintained his link with the Father, for he is God, and there is only one God. And he conquered death because his spirit was in a state of purity in that state of selflessness. That trust, that faith that is totally pure, that is totally in in a state of selfless trust for boasting is excluded by the law of faith according to Romans 4. That is a state of purity or holiness. And so he conquered death on the cross because he always trusted in the Father. God is calling us to go through trials where we may not always feel God's presence and we may be be asked to take the brunt of attack for someone else so that they can live. But God will bring us through with resurrection. He will cause us to conquer every contradiction and bring us into this unity to be his corporate bride. As it describes here, that we may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. It is when people are brought, when the brothers and sisters, when the people that have truly been born again of the Spirit are brought into a deep unity with one another, out of their relationship with God, that the presence of God can begin to indwell them corporately. In fact, the Word of God says in Peter that we are like living stones being built together to form a habitation of God through the Spirit. And when God's presence can come down in such a way that he finds a resting place of dwelling among his people because they are in conformity and unity with him and with one another. Then there is the authority and power of God to do powerful things that when we pray, God answers our prayer and the enemy is totally destroyed. In fact, it says here that we'll know the love of God that passes knowledge and we will be filled with all the fullness of God And as a result, it says this, that now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. The power that works in us is according to the depth that we have come in to a unity with God and with one another in Christ, the one true God. 
when that happens, then great powerful things will happen. And when believers in each community and city begin to come into this unity and God is beginning to do it and bring people together into this unity to bring forth this corporate bride around the world, it will shake all the world's systems that are shakable, that what's unshakable might remain, which will be the kingdom of God, which will return to the earth at the second coming of Jesus Christ to conquer the Antichrist world system. Thank you for listening to this message. My prayer is that you will know your destiny and find your destiny in God for eternity. God bless you all.